Well, I promised you preaching after Brother Tony's song, so there you go. <laughs> if she could, she would. Turn your Bible tonight, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I won't keep you long tonight, and uh, I'll let you in on a secret. I don't particularly, uh, well, I, no, I shouldn't say that. I, I enjoy Christmas services, but it's hard. It's hard to preach Christmas services because you want to just preach. But you know you got to be joyful and cheerful and all those things. And, and uh, you just can't get mad at things like you want to sometimes. But that's okay. We're going to tell you some truth tonight regardless. And we'll speak the truth in love. I've titled the message tonight, A Christmas Revival. A Christmas Revival. Luke chapter 4 is the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of the desert of temptation. And you'll notice that the Bible says he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness he left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. It's some of those difficult times in our lives that we draw closer to the Lord and He really empowers our lives. And as He left the wilderness, He came in uh, to a city and there He went into the synagogue and He took a scroll. We're going to read about that tonight. And what He reads is from the book of Isaiah, a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Now we don't know a lot about Jesus Christ outside of His birth when He was 12 years old. By the way, young people here tonight, when, when the Bible says he was 12 years old, do you know what it says about Jesus? He was subject unto his parents. I just thought I'd throw that out there for you parents this Christmas season. How's that? You got your kids home for the next two weeks. Jesus was subject. You know what? He knew more than his parents. Think about that. You know, we, we make fun of our parents because they can't figure out their computer. I do it with my mom all the time. You can't figure out your little keypad, and you can't figure out your iPad, and you're all those. And so they, you bring it to your four-year-old, and they know how to fix it for you, right? Jesus knew more than his mom and dad, and he was still subject unto them. That's what the Bible says. The next time we see the Lord Jesus Christ as he's being baptized, he goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights as he's fasting. And he comes out in the power of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about him. And the Bible says in verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. Think about this. He hadn't done a thing yet. He hadn't done a miracle. He had been baptized he went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And he came out of the wilderness in such power of the Spirit of God, a ripple was sent out around the regions of Galilee. There's a prophet. There's something. He hadn't preached a message. He hadn't given back the sight to blind eyes. He hadn't raised a dead person yet. But the power of God was upon him. And people knew it. And he came in the spirit to Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue of the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, Isaiah 61, by the way, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. Now, just, just look at what's going on. Jesus stands up 
The Spirit of God is upon him, and he reads this great passage, the prophecy of himself out of the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he tells all the things that the Messiah is going to do. And he hands the book back, and everybody's just staring at him. He goes over, and he finds a seat, and everybody's eyes follow him. As the Lord Jesus Christ takes his place, he says he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and he sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fascinated. Understand this, the rabbi has now lost the service. Nobody's listening to him anymore. By the way, if Jesus walks in, you don't need to listen to me, okay? All eyes on Christ. And they all follow him back to his seat and they're all staring at him. And I believe the rabbi is turned and he is looking at Jesus as well. And Jesus looks up and says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. One announcement of the coming of the Christ. He'd been here now for 30 years, but now he was about to begin his ministry. I want to preach a message tonight for the next few moments if the Lord will let me, entitled, a Christmas revival. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand your word. Lord, we've heard a lot of singing tonight. It's blessed my heart. We've heard testimony of God's grace in the life of our family. Lord, I do pray, Lord, now that you would turn our attention to the word of God. Lord, you are the living word. And as all eyes turned and fastened upon you on that day, we pray that tonight again they would fasten on you that our eyes would only be on Jesus, that I would only be a messenger, but that your word would take root in our hearts and do a great work here tonight. Lord, bless us, we pray, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hold your finger there in Luke chapter 4 for a moment and turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read just a short passage here to you and show you some things from the book of Ephesians about God's church about God's church. Ephesians 5 has a great passage. If you'll look with me in Ephesians chapter 5 and look at verse 22. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Men, how many of those you have that underlined in your Bible? Don't admit it. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Listen, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I just want you, I'm just going to throw this out there. Christ is the head of the church. A true Bible church has Christ as its head. It has no human founder. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, I will build my church. Now you say, well, when did that happen? I don't know. I will build his future tents. It just means he would build. So now that we have a church, we can say self-assuredly that Christ started it. It was God's church, it's Christ's church, he is the head of it. Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible reinforces this thought as the Apostle Paul writes in verse 23, and I'm trying to get my pages, there we go, verse 23, uh, verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Christ is the head of the church. Now look back in Ephesians chapter 5 and keep reading with me verse 24. Therefore as the church is subject unto Christ so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands love your wives. Now listen to this. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 
Uh, I'd say, first of all, tonight that Christ uh, is the head of the church. Number two, Christ loved and died for the church. You're following me. You all, this isn't new, right? You understand this. Christ uh, follow, uh, died and loves the church. And, and therefore, every member of Christ's church has come through the blood of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Because Christ died for the church. If you're, if you're not saved tonight, if you've not come through the blood, you're not part of the church. Because Christ didn't die for you. Christ died for the church. Now, Christ died for everybody in the sense that we can all come to him and find salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. But to be saved tonight, to be born again, is to be a part of his church. And so Christ is the head of the church. Christ died for the church. Christ loves the church. Now look at verse uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Turn back just a, a page or two. Verse 21. The Bible says, Unto him, Jesus Christ, be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Christ is to receive glory in the church. Do you know that God said he wouldn't share his glory with another? I'm going to share something with you. I, I struggle sometimes with what we do in church services. Let me give you an example. When we have a Remembrance Day service, we try to do that during Sunday school and then have a church service. This last year, because of the way everything fell out with COVID and our limitations that we have, we had uh, on, on our anniversary weekend, we had a Remembrance Day service. And then you'll remember, I stopped and said, now that doesn't count as our time, right? We're going to start our service now. Here's why. Not that I, I don't want to honor our, our military or honor those who have served our country. Not that I don't want to do that. But I don't think God should ever have to share this platform with anybody. He's not sharing his glory with anyone. And so when it comes time to start the service, now I don't have a problem doing other things in church. But when it comes time for the worship, we're here to worship. We're not here to talk about the team volleyball game on Friday night. We are here to worship the Lord. And so we try to guard that jealously. We're not perfect. Sometimes we make mistakes. We slip an announcement in that we didn't mean to make. And, and I don't mind sharing prayer requests because when we give a prayer request, I believe that we are saying to God, we are trusting you to take care of this need. Prayer is a form of worship. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But I just don't want to get talking about all the trips and the activities that we're going to do in the middle of a service. We do them at the end of the service. Just a little insight to why we do that. Why? Because unto him be glory in the church. It may seem like a small thing to some, but I think it's important to God. Look back in Ephesians chapter 5. Let me give you another thing about the church. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26. The Bible says uh, that he may sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the washing of water by his word. The church is to be cleansed and kept pure by the word of God. That is our only rule for faith and practice, the Bible. Some people have it in their statement of faith that it is our final authority, but that implies there's some other authority out there. There is not. The Bible is our only rule, our only authority for faith and practice. And we preach the Bible because it cleanses the church. It keeps us pure before God. So the, the church is cleansed and sanctified and kept pure by the word of God. And look at verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Christ desires his church to be clean, 
pure, holy, that he might present it to himself. He calls it his bride. And he wants his bride to be pure. Now, I give you all that as introduction very quickly to say this. The Apostle Paul gives us some summary statements in Ephesians chapter 5, or really the whole book of Ephesians, about the inner workings of what a church should be like. There are many others, aren't there? We could turn to Romans, Galatians. We could turn to all the church epistles, the pastoral epistles. We could find all kinds of things that God says, you ought to do this in the church. i just give you a few tonight. But what about the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? Now, I believe it stands to reason, and, and listen, we ought not trust our own reason a lot of times. But if Christ is the head of the church, and Christ died for the church, and Christ gave us his word to sanctify and purify and keep the church right, and Christ says, I want to present the church to myself, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, if, if all those things are true, then I believe that the mission and the heart of the church ought to represent the mission and the heart of Jesus Christ. That's what it ought to look like. That's what it ought to resemble. So that takes us back to Luke chapter 4. And, and look there with me tonight as we look at our message. This statement that I read to you earlier that Jesus Christ opened up the prophecy of Isaiah and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach and, and go on to all these things. This is the very heart and mission of Jesus Christ. This is what he came to do. Uh, you say, well, I saw him raise Lazarus in the Bible. No, no, that was a means to an end. That was something Jesus did so other people might get saved. He said, what about that, that little boy that was lame? And, and, and the, the Pharisees asked, who did sin, this boy or his father? And he said, no, 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 nobody sinned here. This is so that you might see the glory of God. There's a purpose here. But I want to give you some things that we see in this, this purpose statement of Christ tonight. Isaiah said, the Messiah is coming. And the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. And he's going to do some things that nobody else before him has done. And nobody will ever do again. And Jesus said, today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Let's look at them quickly tonight, if you would. I believe that a biblical church, a biblical church, first of all, ought to be an assembly that reaches people. It's an assembly that reaches people. We ought not just come in here and close our doors and forget about everybody else. Notice what it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. How do we reach people? Number one, the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. You notice what it says there? It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That phrase, preach the gospel, is one word in the Greek. Evangelizo, where we get our word evangelism. It's one word. To evangelize. 
to preach the gospel, to preach the good news to the poor, the Bible says. So we, we are to reach the lost by preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, and I'll read the passage to you so I can give you a little more detail than just quoting it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also we have received, and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I have delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures." And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James then all of the apostles. And last of all he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. The gospel is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ verified by those witnesses, hundreds of witnesses, that said he is alive. The Bible says that we are to preach the gospel to the poor. You say, what are the poor? People without money? No, no, no. Matthew chapter 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those that are meek and humble before God, Revelation chapter 3 tells us that the Laodicean church was poor and miserable and naked. They thought they were rich and they thought they had much, but they were truly poor. Why? Because they didn't have Christ. Oh, friend, you need Jesus Christ tonight. It ought to be the mission of the church to reach out to others. There's the preaching of the gospel. Notice also in verse 18, the preaching of hope. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Listen to the next thing. To preach deliverance to the captive. Deliverance to the captive. To give people hope. To give them hope. This, this word deliverance literally means uh, a, a pardon and a forgiveness of sin. We preach so much against sin, don't we? In our society, it's run rampant. And it just makes us sick to our stomach to see how society is crumbling all around us and giving in to the sins of the world and the lust of the flesh. And we preach against that sin and we preach hard against that sin. But you know what? People are in captivity to that sin. They need to hear about deliverance. They need to have hope. They need to know there's a Jesus. When we were kids, we used to sing, He plucked me from the miry clay. His banner over me is love. You make that popping. You ever do that? Everybody want to try that right now? No. Some of your teeth would come out, wouldn't they? You remember doing that, though? He plucked me from the miry clay. His banner over me. How come a kid knows that? We get so angry over sin. We ought to pity people who are in sin. They need the hope of Jesus Christ. They need to know there's a Savior who loves them. A captive doesn't need to be lectured about his crimes. He already knows. The criminal on the cross says, we are here justly. We deserve this. But not this man. And what did Jesus do for him? He gave him hope. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. We ought to preach the gospel, but we ought to preach hope to the lost. And we see in verse 19, there's a third type of preaching. He says, you need to preach the preaching of grace. The preaching of grace. Look what he says, to preach 
the acceptable year of the Lord. You see, what does that mean? It's referring to a period of grace. The Bible says that Jesus proclaimed, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me that I might extend grace. This is the time that you can accept the Lord while grace is being extended. We've seen throughout the history that God's Spirit inhabited different peoples at different times. It happened through the prophets and it happened through the high priest. And notice verse 14 of our text that Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God and he carried a message. But now, listen, friends, we are living in the stage of grace and you are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We are to take God's grace to a lost and dying people. We are to be an assembly that reaches people through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of hope, and the preaching of grace. Secondly, I think if we're going to be a biblical church, we ought to be an assembly that restores people. Look what it says, the second ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Look what it says next. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. There's some brokenhearted folks here tonight. We were in Texas mourning the loss of my mother-in-law when we got the terrible news about Brian Norsworthy. There's grief all around. There's sorrow and people have broken hearts. Sometimes though we hear things like this, I don't feel sorry for them. They got what they deserve. You ever heard somebody say that? You better pray you don't get what you deserve. Hmm. You ever heard somebody say, that's what happens when you make choices like that? You ever heard somebody say they got themselves into that mess, they can get themselves out? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Have you ever said it? Have you ever said, I'm through helping, now they're on their own? I've tried. Do you know what Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says? Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. In the spirit of meekness, considering thyself also, lest thou be tempted. We ought to be an assembly that restores people. That's the literal meaning of he came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to help people. He came to restore people. He came to bring people back and make them whole. Jesus didn't just come to help. He came to make people whole. Body, soul, and spirit. People may be broken because of sin or sorrow or stupidity or a slip-up or a stumble, but Jesus doesn't discriminate. He just came to heal. That's, that's what we do. Somebody's brokenhearted and we sit down with them and we hear their story and we find out that they're in sorrow and we commiserate with them and we pray with them. Then we sit down with the other person across the aisle and we found out it was because of something stupid they did. And we go, well, you made your bed, now lie in it. You know what Jesus said? I've come to heal the brokenhearted on both sides of the aisle. <laughs> I don't care if you were sorrowful or if you're stupid. I don't care if it was sin or a struggle. I just came to fix it. If we're going to resemble the ministry and the mission and the heart of Christ, we had a church, the assembly that reaches people and an assembly that restores people because that was the heart of Christ. Look at the third thing with me. 
We see thirdly that the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. Look what it says next. And recovering of sight to the blind. The recovery of sight to the blind. Thirdly, we ought to be an assembly that recovers people. Helps people to recover. Do you know who the outcasts were in Jesus' day? It was the leper, the lame, the blind. They were the ones that nobody wanted. It was blind Bartimaeus that was sitting by the wayside begging, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Nobody to help him. Even the disciples, those men of God, came and tried to hush him. But Jesus heard his cries. And he went and he healed his blinded eyes. But I believe when the Bible says, set to recover, the recovery of the sight of the blind, it is more than just a physical blindness, it is a spiritual blindness. I believe that it is more than just being made to see, but it means to, to, to nurture and to disciple them and bring them to ministry, not just to set them straight, but to help them to recover. If you've ever had a surgery and operation, you understand that the surgery or the, uh, the surgeon may be able to fix something right away. But the recovery period takes some time, doesn't it? You have to be nurtured. You have to be helped. You have to take some required time to physically heal. And I think sometimes as a church, we are good at seeing people saved and we're good at restoring people from their, their previous state of sin. But are we helping them recover? Are we bringing them along into a fuller relationship with Jesus Christ? Are, how, how are we treating them after uh, they've been made right? And I believe there's a couple applications here. One, there are people in our society that are forgotten and then they need Christ. Who are the blind in our society? Who are the lepers outside our doors? Who are the ones that when they show up, we go, oh boy, here they are again. They're the ones that need the recovery. They're the ones that Christ came to save. When it comes to literal blindness, I am unable to give sight to the blind. But I can pray for those who are blinded to the gospel. We ought to be an assembly that helps people to recover. There's another group here that we see that Jesus came to help. Look at the last part of the verse there. He says, To set at liberty them that are bruised. We ought to be an assembly that releases people. How do we treat people? Listen, listen. How do we treat people after they have sinned and been forgiven? How do we treat people after they've sinned and been forgiven? Do we hold them in prison or do we release them? Because that's exactly what this phrase means. Deliverance, freedom, to set at liberty them that are bruised. It's talking about the bruising of sin. The pain that sin inflicts upon a life. The injury that sin causes. The disability that it leaves a person with. And when they're restored and when they're made whole, how do we treat them? 
You know what's sad? That Rahab carries around that title harlot her whole life. How many of you refer to Rahab in the Bible as harlot? Don't raise your hand. That's just how she's been come to know, isn't it? Rahab's a child of God. She's in the genealogy of Christ. She'd slap every one of us when we got to heaven, calling her a harlot. She's saved. And yet we call her a harlot. How do we treat people? It's not just about recovery, about restoration. It's about how do we make people feel when they've turned back from their sin? When there's a change in their life, when Christ takes a hold of them, it's more than just helping someone find restoration. This is treating them like they never sinned in the first place. It is a full and complete pardon. So I could, I could never trust that person again. Christ shouldn't have never trusted you, but he did. And he forgave you. Perhaps folks wouldn't be so quick to leave a church if they knew that when Christ forgives them, that so do we. And better yet, that we treat them exactly how we did before they fell. I can't tell you how many times people have left churches because of shame. And if God's people would just treat them right, perhaps they'd be back. That's on us. We have to take responsibility. Listen, you say, does that mean we excuse sin? Absolutely not. We don't want sin in the church. Do you want sin in the church? No, absolutely not. But the goal is always to restore. The goal is always to help them recover. The goal is always to release them. Jesus Christ said, I've come that you might have life and have it how? More abundantly. Somebody living in a prison of fear and guilt never has abundant life. I want to be the church that Christ wants us to be. And if we're going to be the church Christ wants us to be, we have to be a church that looks like the mission and the heart of Jesus Christ. Christ said, can you imagine what those Pharisees must have thought? Well, I don't like the sound of that. He's going to set people at liberty? No, no, we got them in bondage. We got them right in our grip. He's going to tell people they can be free from sin? No, no. We can control them this way. I, I, I don't know why, but I, I, I take a lot of joy in seeing Jesus sitting down after he read that scripture with a little smirk on his face. <laughs> you bunch of crazy Pharisees, you're about to get real mad because today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Oh, that must have ticked him off. But Jesus didn't care. He came to set you free. What kind of Christmas revival could we have if we said we want to be the church that Jesus wants us to be? If that's the heart and mission of Christ, we ought to be like that. We ought to love people like that. We ought to treat people like that. You know what the two greatest commandments in the Bible are? Love the Lord thy God, all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, you don't get to pick your neighbors. It's whoever God puts in your path. You need to love them.
help them recover, restore them, bring them to a place where they feel like this is home. Let's bow our heads. Father, we love you. I thank you for a few quick thoughts from your word tonight, and we pray that it would just settle in our hearts. If this is what Jesus came to do, he must want his followers to do the same. If we're truly going to be disciples of Christ, we must act like Christ. So Lord, I pray that this Christmas we would take this mission of Christ and we would extend that love to a lost and dying world, but we'd also extend it to our brothers and sisters of Christ that are in just as much need of grace as we are. Help us, Lord, to love one another. And Father, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand tonight with our heads bowed and eyes closed. The altar's open. If God spoke to your heart, would you pray? Would you pray for our church? That we'd have the right heart, the right spirit, the mission of Christ.